Welcome to Redemption Hill podcast. For more information about Redemption Hill, go to redemptionshill.com. All right, good morning, family. That was actually really good. <laughs> I was expecting way lower. I'm just going to be real with you. Um, so glad to be here. My name's Colby. I'm thankful for TJ. When we uh, landed here, one of our chief prayers uh, was just for allies. Like, we know we're not the only Christians in this community. We know we're not the only ones that are all about the glory of God and want to see churches planted and disciples made and people come to Christ. And so we just pray, God, like, when we land, like, we just want some allies, some people that we can have, that we can get in the trenches with. And uh, it's just so grateful for that, brother. I mean, when he talks about us hanging out, mainly it's just drinking coffee, making fun of you guys. You know what I mean? Like, that's just 100% real. And... Or making fun of Scott, who's not here today. Um, so most of my sermon illustrations are about him. Uh, so, um, but it's great to be with you. Um, I we we a little bit about our ministry. We did like ten years of collegiate work in Oklahoma, and then the last eight years we've been between France, where we planted churches in Paris, and then Durango, Colorado, where we helped revitalize a the church there. And so, kind of a, a big part of what we do is we go to highly secular areas or pagan areas or post-Christian areas, and then we just want to see God do things there. And so we pray and fast and preach and try to serve uh, in such a way that we get to be a part of God revitalizing things. And so that's kind of been a little bit of us. So we spent the last eight months in uh, this heathen country called California out west. Uh, You might have heard of her. Um, And uh, we took some time and visited some different churches out there. And I'll tell you, like California gets a well-deserved bad rap, um, but there are some brothers and sisters in Christ out there that are absolutely heralding the gospel. I mean, I was blown back by how many Christians under a situation that many of us would never drive out there for um, are trying to be faithful to Jesus. And so we were trying to glean everything we could glean from like, what are you doing um, in these secular areas? What are you doing to reach people? Um, How can we come alongside that? And while we were there, um, I I work out like twice a week, you know, you can tell. And I I went there and I had to find a gym and so I left the gyms that I knew, and I went to this gym in California called Metroflex. All right? Everything you need to know is built into that name. And it was the kind of gym where you walk into it, and you can just smell the steroids and plastic surgery. And I'm apparently now famous on TikTok because I'm in 100 people's videos in the background because people just filming themselves curling. All right? And when I went in, it just made me, I've been lifting and exercising for a long time, but it made me so brutally, I felt so awkward walking into this gym. And I forgot what it was like to be a new person. Like, am I doing things right? You know, what's in the culture? How, am I breaking some unwritten rule in here? And it kind of gets down into our text a little bit. Like, do you remember the first time you came to church? Like for some of you, you were kids and you were like army crawling under pews we don't even have anymore, right? That was your experience. You don't even remember it, but you were there. You just knew that you're not supposed to run or lie or cuss in church. It's fine everywhere else. Unless you're charismatic. You can definitely run in church if you're charismatic, right? Like 
There's all these kind of like rules that you had to figure out in the sanctuary, right? And then maybe you were older, you came into church and you walked in, you're like, what is this thing? And why are we singing about bloods of lambs and stuff? And you're trying to, it's almost like you needed a passport kind of to come into church and kind of get a a full grasp of like, what is this thing that I have gathered to? And oftentimes, nothing has been better than us than a friend grabbing us and bringing us to church because it kind of helps us say like, answer some questions for me about what is this thing? Like, how am I supposed to approach it? Right? And at the same time, I, I would argue for most of us, huge life-altering decisions, good, holy, crossroads, do-or-die moments have happened in my faith in a congregation like this. Would you say the same? Like you've made some life-altering decisions in the congregation of God. God God-ordained decisions. And so, as we come to our text today, which is going to talk about how we approach church. Um, maybe we, we need to like take a step back and with fresh eyes, look at our approach. Are you with that? All right, so before we do that, I, I want to pray and then I'm going to jog a little bit about where the book has been. For some of you, you might have stumbled in here and you don't know the book of Ecclesiastes. I'm going to kind of give you a, a long runway to kind of get you there about the context, and then we're going to dive into chapter five. Cool? All right, let's pray and ask for God's help. Dear Heavenly Father, we enter your courts with thanksgiving and your presence with praise. Father, praise is befitting of you because you sent your only begotten son that whoever in here would believe in his name would be saved. And so, Father, I thank you that you saved people like me, dead in our trespasses and sins, left to ourselves, completely lost, and that you rescued us and that you placed us into your family, the church. God, as we come here today, would you lift our eyes? Would you correct our low views of your majesty and your glory and of what is happening here in this gathering. God, keep us from our worldly approaches to church. God, I know we come in here with a thousand distractions and the enemy pressing in on us, but Holy Spirit, would you come and rescue our hearts and deliver them to the throne of grace that we might find grace and mercy in our time of need. God, I pray for my brothers and sisters to have ears to hear, to pause as we come to your word, that they would be enabled by you, the Holy Spirit, to listen today, to hear and respond in the most righteous ways possible. God, this is all about you, And so come now and be the teacher, be the shepherd, preach your word, show us your way that we might walk in it. We pray that in the strong name of Jesus. Everyone said, amen. All right, turn if you got a Bible to Ecclesiastes chapter five. Uh, 
I'm not scared of your sermon series in Ecclesiastes. Love this book. Ecclesiastes is part of the Megaloth, which is five books of the Bible that were read during certain festivals in the Old Testament. Ecclesiastes would have been read during Pentecost. It is wisdom literature that God gave us. So before Socrates, Aristotle, Plato, you get Solomon. It is written by a guy described as the Koaleth. This is a Hebrew word that connects to uh, kind of a Greek root of ecclesia. We get the word uh, ecclesia or church from this word, but it's the picture of someone who is a gatherer. He's a collector. He's going to reach deep in his bag and give you some treasures. So if you're some of those ladies in here that love going to antique stores, Ecclesiastes is your book, all right? It's the garage sailing of the Old Testament. It's treasures. Here's how I would put it. It's discounted wisdom. It's wisdom, but it's discounted to you because Solomon's already been an idiot and paid the cost for it, all right? And so he's trying to deliver to you saying, I've been there, I've done that, I got the t-shirt. You don't got to walk the same paths that I walked, all right? It's life in Solomon interpreted from the rearview mirror, all right? And so he's going to collect this wisdom and then deal it out to us. In particular, when we see how this book fits within li wisdom literature or even within Solomon's life, Song of Solomon, he's young, he falls in love with the it girl, right? And he writes poetry and music. Proverbs, he's got parents who disciple him and others that educate him and it's the right way to live. And then Ecclesiastes is him preaching through his scars when he's trying to tell you all the things that he didn't do that he knew to do. It's the prodigal son coming back and telling you what the pigsty was like. So if Psalms teaches us how to worship, Proverbs teaches us how to behave, Job teaches us how to suffer, Song of Solomon teaches us how to love, Ecclesiastes maybe teaches us how to live by how not to live that we should not love the world or the things of the world. As Christians, we should renounce the world. It, in some ways, is salty in a way that gives us like a thirst for living water. It, it, it stirs our appetite for something more than the junk food that we find in materialism. Right, so here's the big kind of point. It's like, what is the point of life? In the book, as I know TJ's already taught, can be a bit like emo, right? It's country music-esque, a bit brooding, right? Like it's, it's like 11 and a half chapters of Eeyore from like Winnie the Pooh. And then you get like one thing at the end. It's like, yeah, but God's good. Like at the end, it's like, well, bro, could you have started with that, right? There's a cliffhanger there at the end. But why does it do... Why does this book almost teach us invert? Why does it do it this way? The book of Ecclesiastes is a shot across the bow of anyone trying to live their life apart from God. It is coming for the chinks in your armor. You heathens that think you don't need him. He's like, bet that. Let's skin that and see what happens. You don't need him? All right, let's, let's look at your job. Let's look at your pleasure. Let's look at your family. Let's look at everything you're giving your life to. And like a big brother, Solomon is going to push all the weaknesses of that worldview. He's going to hit your pressure points. 
And he's going to lead you to say that if under the sun, if this life is all you have, you're massively missing out. It's just not going to work for you the way that you think it's going to work. And so while it can be brooding, it's got some really powerful things to say about your life apart from God. Why does this matter? Why does this matter? Well, number one, let's say it like this. One-fifth of people 30 and above identify as religious nuns, non-religious. 30 and below, about 33%. Here in Columbia, when we worked on our perspectives for planting, 60% of Columbia identifies as non-religious. So they're living the bad verses of Ecclesiastes every Monday. This has to bear on you loving your neighbors well. You hear me? Now, let's get it right. Solomon is not an atheist. He's not saying, does God exist or not? Here's the question of the book of Ecclesiastes, and this will come to bear kind of oddly on chapter five as well. It's not a matter, does God exist? It's the question, does God matter? Does he matter for your career? Does he matter for your pleasure? Does he matter in your education? And he's going to press that as hard as he possibly can. Okay, so inside of this, as I've already alluded to, there's two main keys, and you've got to have these keys, and it's almost like you've got to talk about these keys every sermon. The two main keys to getting what I just said is the first one is under the sun. That is, he is looking at as if John Lennon wrote the book of Ecclesiastes. Imagine there's no God, there's no heaven, there's no hell. It's under the sun. Nothing transcendent, nothing beyond. It's just this life in the material universe. The second is the Hebrew word havel, which has to do with vanity. And I know TJ's kind of talked about the complexity of this word. It's difficult because in a literal sense, it means vapor or mist. So it's like my, my homies in Colorado that got, you know, they got the pipe smoke, the smoke coming up. That's Havel in a literal sense. But in a metaphorical sense, it's like, is smoke a thing? Well, yes, it's a thing. But the moment you try to grasp it, it gets away from you. Like it doesn't have, it's not solid. You it's building your life upon the sand. It's Havel. It's like the moment you try to like really get a hold of it, it's gone. And so these two ideas is like, it's under the sun, everything is Havel. Everything is vain and elusive, right? Okay, and, and then it's this humanistic, materialistic, Worldview, And so in earlier chapters, he talked about the Havel of your education, that you can look at the earth cycles and you can look at them, but it ne- you can look at the creation, but you never get to the creator. Then he kind of moves to like the Havel, the vanity of pleasure. He's like, look, I pumped my life with absolutely every single pleasure that's out there. He says, I had more resource. I got that Jeff Bezos, Zuckerberg, Saudi Arabia money all right? And I was able to do things that none of you could do, right? Like you um, think you have lots of sex. It's like I had 300 
concubines. Kids, if you don't know what that is, ask your parents at home, right? So my side chicks had side chicks. You know what I'm saying? And he's like, I had more sex than you, and I promise you that's not going to fix you. And then he comes, and he's like, I bought everything that was on Amazon until they were out of everything, and it just didn't fix me. I know that you can't buy houses right now because of the interest rate. I get it. He didn't even care about the interest rate. He bought house after house after house. And he's like, you, you have a koi pond from Home Depot in your backyard. I built National Forest. Projects and accomplishments are not going to do it for you. It's Havel. It's not going to give your soul the transcendence that God alone can give it. Take all the pleasure you want. And he goes on and on and on until we get to here. Now, maybe here's maybe the sense of where this leaves us is a bit depressing. But I've said this before, and I think it's worth repeating here. Depression is oftentimes your soul telling your body something is wrong. And I know we're Americans and we want to run straight to pharmaceuticals. But maybe we should pause and say, maybe our soul is telling our body the way we're living. Is there something messed up? Have you been there? Come on, man. And he's trying to lead us to a place of maybe the pattern of behavior you're chasing. Maybe it's just not good for you. Maybe you weren't created for it. So until you get real about your life without God, you will never see your need for God. And that's kind of been the standard by which we stumble now into chapter five. What good would it be if you gained the whole world, but you forfeited your soul? Now, chapter five is a little bit different, and I want to read it, and then I'll come back and break it down, okay? Because it it seems like it doesn't fit. It's like, well, we're living life without God. Why why are we going to church? If you you think people don't go to church without a relationship to God, you're crazy, all right? Now, let's look at it, and then we're going to come back, okay? Chapter five, guard your steps when you go into the house of God. To draw near to listen is better than to offer the sacrifice of fools, for they do not know that they are doing evil. All right, let's pause right there. Better in the text to listen, which I know we're all great at. Nobody in here needs to improve in their listening skills. Then foolish sacrifices. He's not against sacrifices, right? Note the text. He's against foolish ones that in themselves, for they do not know something, that they are doing evil. They don't sense something, they don't know something, and therefore their activity is in fact evil. He's not mincing words. He doesn't say it's a mistake. He says evil. Note, right here, church, they are attending. They are coming. They go to events. They're sacrificing. They're giving. Right? We'd say they're involved, right? But they are coming to church wrong. 
Here's what the text say. It would be better if they came, sat down, shut up, and listened. They learn first, then act. See, they're acting, presuming that they get to dictate the terms of their relationship to God. But here's the problem. They don't know who God is. And their activity, therefore, is evil. They don't know what they don't know. And their foolish religious activity does not take them into the person of God. It doesn't take account the holiness of God. It doesn't take account the majesty of God. It doesn't take account his weight, his promises, his word, his transcendence. As though God is just grateful that they're there doing anything at all. They're acting as though God is like a man like you and I. That he can be negotiated with. That he can be leveraged. That they could pin his arm behind his back. This is an under the sun, vain approach. And the Bible's response to them is, watch your step. Guard your steps. You're tripping. So let's just pause for a minute. How do you come to church? Talk to me. How do you come in here? Because I know in my house, sometimes it's like we're trying to like threaten a kid within an inch of their lives five minutes before we walk in here. Right? Me and my wife, you act like me and my wife have not fought right before I had to get up here and preach. Is that too real? TJ's got a great marriage. It's better. How about this? Have you ever stumbled in here and you're, you're like half awake because you made decisions on Saturday night that affected Sunday morning? Listen, there's some older saints in here that'll know. There's an older generation that came before us that they began to prepare for morning worship on Sunday. I promise you, there was things that the older generation did on Saturday night. So dad, talk to me. What, what's your home rhythm? What are you guys doing on Saturday night, dads, to get ready for Sunday morning? Maybe if I had to be honest about this, I mean, if this isn't you, it's fine. I have 100% come to church before, heard the songs, heard the sermon, and got nothing from it, and it was 100% my fault. Whoever was preaching crushed it, the, word, the songs were, were biblical, but the problem was me. So talk to me. How do you come in here? Is this like a thing you got to get through so you can get the discounted kids meals at Dickie's Barbecue on Sunday as soon as it's over? Hope I just didn't tell you all the secret. All right. How do you come in here? Um, me and my wife do a date night. And the thing that I've learned about date night is you got to not only schedule it, you got to protect it. You know what I'm saying? Because what happens is we'll schedule it and then 32 things decide they want to come up on the same time we do in that. 
And we got to not only schedule it, we got to protect it. Like, as far as I know, TJ, y'all haven't changed the time y'all meet on Sunday mornings for like years, right? All right. It's not only scheduled, but it must be protected, right? So talk to me. How do you come in to this worship service? And I, listen, it's not like it's hard for us to get this concept. This illustration has been used since 1974. It's the idea of like, we will show up to a Mizzou football game three hours in advance. We got no problems making sure we're wearing the right colors, right? And, and I'm not, listen, I'm not trying to say that we should be tailgating out here in front of the Seventh-day Adventist building with like ribs passing out Guinness three hours. Maybe I am, you know what I mean? Like, I would more likely come to this church if ribs are involved, right? But are we coming and anticipating the goodness of what we're doing here, family. Are we prepped and ready to hear the word and worship together and to hug people's necks and for our kids to be engaged with the word? Or are we coming in here nonchalant with low expectations and a low view of God? How do you walk in here? That's what I'm trying to say. Because the Bible's going to say, guard your steps. Guard your steps. We're trusting in the glory of God, not coffee covering over our bad sleep habits. And, and here's the deal. Knowing that the Bible knows there's people that are not born again. They are not Christians. They're going to come to church. You know, they love Christmas and Easter, that kind of crowd. Like, Maybe one of the most wild witnessing things you could do is come to church differently than the way the world does. Like, it's just serious business to you. Like, it's non-negotiable. And I think that that maybe starts with being different from the world and how you go to church by slowing down. Now, I've got some slides. I'm going to bring these up. I think I, I learned this this week or a couple weeks ago, and I think it's, it's awesome. The phrase house of God, which is in this text, is mentioned 50 times in the Bible, 46 in the Old Testament, four in the New Testament, and then there's like a dozen references to roughly the same thing. The flavor of it is where the people of God come to meet God. Um, so it has like the tabernacle, the synagogue, church, big church, little church, that kind of thing. But most centrally, it has to do with the temple, because, as I'm sure you've been taught here before, the temple really has to do with Jesus. Jesus is the temple that was destroyed in three days and then raised again. He is, in his person, the meeting place by which we commune with God and we find atonement. And so the temple is really all about Jesus. And so um, it, it, when they talked about going to temple, they would talk about the house of God. Jesus would say... Uh, about God, like, this is my house of prayer, but you've made it a den of thieves, right? Like, they've made the house of God out to be something other than what God intended it to be, all right? And so, when this text is going to say, when you go up to the house of God, like, watch your steps, guard your steps, there's both a figurative meaning of that, of like your conduct and your heart and your spirit, but there's also a literal that connects to that, um, and I think it's fascinating because Solomon is actually the one that oversaw the building of the temple. Now, um, I, I think this is awesome. In 
in 67, they unearthed the steps to the southern part of the temple. And there used to be big gates. They're now blocked up. But these steps going up the southern part of the temple were called the rabbi steps or the teaching steps. Most scholars agree that Jesus would come to these steps and would teach from this actual location inside uh, Israel. Buzz Aldrin, who walked on the moon, when he came there, said, this is more meaningful to me to walk where Jesus walked than it was to walk on the moon. And so these steps are uniquely built. If you'll go to the next slide. There's a 12-inch step followed by a 35-inch step. Go to the next one. Some of them are actually carved out of the original Mount Moriah. So look at this step. That first one's a 12, then, and it just kind of goes in this repeating pattern. Now, why is it built short step, long step, 12 inch, 35, 12, 35? Um, I know some of you right now, you're uncoordinated. You're looking at that and you're like, I'm out, <laughs> right? Whenever you run, you look like you're drowning on land and you're just like, if it takes coordination, I'm like Bambi on ice. It's not happening. Why? It's like, great. If God, if to worship God, I got to solve a Rubik's cube with my feet it's like, I'm not going to church, right? So why, why would God do this, right? There's a reason. You can't, listen to this church, you can't easily run up these steps. It's built for slow. It's built for deliberate, intentional, it's meant to change your pace. Slow down. Don't hurry. Don't rush. Contemplate. These are the teaching steps. Before you get in the house of God, it doesn't start once you get in the building. It starts way before the parking lot. God is trying to slow us down so that we do not flippantly run into his presence like fools. God is not trying to trip you. Your pace is. God is not trying to trip you. Your pace is. He's trying to slow you down. You are worried about something other than him. And so you see this gathering as something to get through instead of the thing itself and what God intends for it to be. So God's just trying to slow your roll. He's like a good father teaching his children how to walk with him. Guard your steps. I'm gonna ask you this, dads. And for all of you here, what does it mean for you this week to change your rhythms of how you approach Sundays? What's one thing, this is a takeaway, what's one thing you can do in your family? And if you're single here, maybe this is one thing for you, right? What's one thing, and if you're like, well, I'm going to the bar every Saturday, maybe it's low-hanging fruit for you, <laughs> all right? What's one thing that you can just kind of change your pace up on Saturday night? Moms, what's one thing you can do on Sunday morning 
that instead of screaming at the kids that they can't wear that, was that too real? (laughs) That's other people, all right? To set the tone and atmosphere of worship before you ever leave the house. Moms, how can you do it? Now, the second part in the bulk of this text, I'm gonna, it's really the same thing, so it's kind of quick to go through, but this is where I want to land this. Look at, back at the text. Verse two. Be, the re, let me pause. If you get the first thing about slowing down, I feel like the second thing really builds off it. So I feel like if you've paused, then the second thing makes a lot of sense. Be not rash with your mouth. So not just quick with slow with feet, slow with words. All right? Nor let your heart be hasty to utter a word before God. For God is in heaven and you are on earth. Therefore, let your words be few. Jesus even taught this about praying. He says we don't want to be like the heathens who just babble on and on and think because of our many words were heard. It says, but, and then he teaches us to pray, right? Simple, honest, straightforward. For a dream, this is a weird parallel to me. For a dream comes with much business and a fool's voice with many words. So here's what he's saying. Have you ever had like one of those weeks where it's like 10,000 things on the calendar? You just got stuff on top of stuff and you're busy. And then all of a sudden you're like dreaming at night and you're just having these crazy lucid dreams because you're just, you're running at such a pace. And what it's saying is, is like when you got so much stuff on your heart, what tends to happen is your unconscious mind tries to process that at night and you end up dreaming, right? All of a sudden you're like fixing a go-kart with your former landlord, And you're like, what does this have to do with my work week? And you're like, I have no idea, all right? So what he's saying is, it's like you get more busy and then there's dreams. What he's saying is, if you are just just pouring out words before God with no thought or intention, more than likely, you're a fool. You got a wicked heart and you're just opening that floodgate thinking nothing dumb's gonna come out? That's crazy, all right? So it's like tendency. It's like you got a tendency the more you multiply words that you're going to say something stupid. And so he's saying, pause, contemplate, right? All right, keep going. Then it says, when you vow a vow to God, do not delay paying it. So the word here is delay. That's the issue. By the way, nowhere in the Old Testament does it require you to give a religious vow to God in order to be right with God. And thank God for that, because we are terrible at keeping vows. For he has no pleasure in fools, pay what you vow. Now, here's what the Bible does have. And a lot of things in the Torah, I don't have time to get into. It does have a lot of criteria. Once you, pay a, once you offer a vow, how you must therefore keep it. Okay? It is better that you should not vow. Exactly what Jesus taught in the New Testament. Do not swear by heaven, which is God's throne, or by the earth, it's his footstool, right? Same, same exact teaching that we get from the master. Not vow that you should vow. Pay what you vow. It is better that you should not vow than that you should vow and not pay. So we go from delaying payment to not payment. Verse six, let not your mouth lead you to sin. If you've ever read the book of James, you get this. And do not say before the messengers that it was a mistake because we've all been there and then we make a vow, we make a promise, 
Then when someone tries to hold our feet to the fire, like we all turn into lawyers looking for a loophole, right? Why should God be angry at your voice and destroy the work of your hands? That is, there is hostility before God with this. For when dreams increase and words grow many, there is, here's our word, havel, vanity, smoke. You're writing checks, your butt can't cash. All right, but God, listen to this, this is where it ends. God is the one you must fear. God is the one you must fear. You don't measure, you don't count the cost of your words, and you don't make plans to follow through. Church, but God does. When God sees to do a thing, he measured, he counted the cost of the cross, and he followed through. Verse four through seven says, don't delay. And I think that we should, as a church, see delayed obedience as disobedience. Don't delay. You may compare don't delay between don't pay. Here's a great illustration of this, at least in my mind. Maybe you won't get it. Anybody ever taken out a student loan? Right? No, too, too honest? Do you realize how absolutely nuts it is that an 18-year-old kid could take out $120,000 of loans for a sociology degree? What's your repayment plan? I'm going to pay you $8 for the next 240 years. Good luck, government. Right? Nobody's trying to pay that thing back. Why? What's the consequences? Fannie Mae going to knock on my door? Okay, let's, let's take it to a different thing. Not you guys. Could you imagine taking out a loan from the mob? A little different from Aunt Fanny. Right? They take kneecaps. Aunt Grandma. Burn your house down. You have a slight motivation to get that one straight. Right? Here's the deal. The reason that we don't pay our vows to God is because we don't fear him. We don't respect him. We don't revere him. We think there is no consequence from the words that we speak to God. The Bible says God is the one you must fear. They have no sense that the words they speak before God has caused some distance in the relationship. There's a gap in the connection that God has a problem with them. Listen, you don't have to sense that there's a problem between you and God for there to be a problem. How many illustrations from my marriage do you want? Right? Just walk in the kitchen, something's wrong here and I have no idea what I did. You don't have to sense a problem for it to be there. But when we start just running our mouth with these promises, I, I swear, I swear, I swear to God, I swear on my mama, right? I swear by the moon and the stars in the sky. If you get that reference, you are definitely old. You're just old, right? Where Jesus is gonna come and say, let your yes be yes. 
You know why he calls us to that? Because God's yes is yes. Heaven and earth will pass away, but his word will not pass away. Jesus, church, is the kept vow of God. Foretold in the Old Testament and delivered to us that we might be saved. Let me say that again. Jesus is the kept vow of God from the Old Testament delivered to us for our salvation. You know where God is different than us? Is that God always keeps his word. Us, not so much. We had best friends that were blood brothers. You ever had a friend shade out on you? How much does that broken vow hurt? A parent that said they were going to be there and then they didn't show up? Is there a more painful broken vow than marriage? See, we're awful at keeping our word. And as much as that hurts, right? But the thing about it is, God always keeps his word. He's just not like us. He's high, exalted, and holy. You hear me? That's why we worship him. And that's why when it comes to keeping your word, you've got a batting average. And he's got an eternal, eternal, unshakable word. It can be trusted, y'all. So last story and we're done. So I got five kids and every single one of them, we've had to go through this basic drill when it comes to water. Water is amazing. I grew up on Lake Texoma, a huge lake, about an hour north of Dallas. And um, I never learned to swim, all right? I just came out the womb and I was ready, all right? Which everybody on the lake, just, you just don't drown, okay? That's the, that's the thing. My wife and her people, they're not swimmers. And so we've, we've had to like fix our kids somewhere in between, okay? Every one of my kids, we've had to have at the at like side of the pool, we're in the water having fun. Joy with dad is in the water. I'm going to suplex them. I'm going to like do all kinds of wrestling moves. I'm going to throw them, right? Water's awesome, amen? It's cool. It's cool to be with dad in the water. We're going to have fun. Every one of my kids is going to look at that water and be like, nah, man, I'm out. They're like Hebrews. There's chaos in the water. I'm not about to be Jonah going down in there. And we've had to have some sort of like back and forth of like, look, jump to me in the water. I'm going to catch you. Right? Jump. Like, I got you. I don't know if you've seen me lift. I got your 42 pounds. Come on in. And the kid just going to look at me and be like, look at the water. And I got a decision to make. Are they more scared of the water or do they t- trust my word? Now, here's the thing. If they stay afraid of the water, they're going to miss out on water slides, redneck jumping off of bridges. Those are things down the road. We're not there yet. That's discipleship. Okay? There's great things down this pathway, but it's going to start with, I'm at the side of the pool, jumping in my hands. I keep my word. I promise I won't let you drown. It's going to be scary. You're going to get wet. But I got you. Jesus is the promise of God sent to us that we can trust God for our salvation.
and for everything. Can I pray for you? I don't know what God has stirred up in your heart or what the Holy Spirit is doing with you. It could be something completely different than what we talked about today. That happens to me all the time in church. If there is sin right now that you feel just God working on, would you confess that before him? If you've played loose and fast with church, man, would you just confess that and come back to God? If you're maybe coming in here thinking that sheer attendance to a gathering like this does anything for your salvation, would you repent of that and come back to the promise of God that he sent his son to die on the cross for your sins? It's not of your works, at least you should boast, but it's all him. Maybe you just today come back to the vow God made you that he would never leave you nor forsake you. That you don't got to fear the water. You don't got to fear the rest of the world. Just keep your eyes on him. Trust him. Whatever decision across this room you need to make before God, this is your time to make a decision. It's your time to confess, to repent, to surrender all over again. Dear Heavenly Father, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come and thy will be done here on earth as it is in heaven. I pray for my friends in the room who don't know you, that today through the work of your Holy Spirit, they would come to know you trust you, believe, and be saved. God, I pray for my brothers and sisters in this room who need to take one more step in their discipleship, just one. God, I pray for the strength and the vision to take it and the direction that you lead them. God, I pray for this church that you'd grow it mighty, strong, healthy, full of good fruit that brings not earthly glory, but eternal glory to your great name. Father, let what you do in this room not stay in this room. We pray that in the strong name of Jesus. Everyone said, amen.